Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, bail. The system of paying cash bail is so familiar to us in this country that it's sort of faded into the background of our awareness, just sort of the way things are done in our criminal justice system. We've all seen it endless times on TV and in movies. We're going to set bail in the amount of so and so forth. But increasingly, in recent years, reform advocates have been focusing on the mechanics of bail, what it means, and how perhaps it's a terrible way to administer justice in this country, filled with inequities, injustice, and plain bad outcomes for criminal justice. In fact, the practice of assigning cash bail as a condition of an individual's release has led to, in the words of our guest today, a two-tiered system of justice in America. That guest is Rachel Eisenberg. She's the Senior Director of Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. The Center for American Progress is a leading Washington, D.C. think tank. We've had many experts from them on this show before, and we're very happy to have Rachel with us. Again, Rachel focuses on the organization's efforts to shrink the footprint of the criminal justice system and create meaningful alternatives that advance justice and safety in America. Rachel, welcome to Great Ideas. Thank you very much for having me today, Matt. It is great to have you, and it's great to dig into a policy topic that people really don't think about that much, or at least as much as they should. We're not the only ones to do this. We have seen media focus on this topic. John Oliver did an excellent piece on this on last week tonight that I commend to all of our listeners and viewers, if you're catching us on video, they lay out the issue in in really stark terms. But let's dig into it a little bit here in in terms of your expertise. Could we just take a, a step back here? How did we end up with a bail bond system like like we see today. I mean, it's kind of weird conceptually that you're accused of a crime, you're arrested, you go before a judge, and then you pay some money to leave. Like, how, how did we end up with that system? So the origins of bail go back really, I mean, you can you can trace it back probably to the fifth century when there was kind of a need in particular in England to have an alternative system of justice than a blood feud, right? Than just two people taking one person alleging someone else committed a crime and taking their, taking sort of justice into their own hands through physical violence, right? And so a system was established that allowed two people to agree to compensation in particular over a period of time to sort of ameliorate the, the, the harm that was done. And, and, but a number of things have changed in legal systems a, a, across the world and in the U.S. in particular since that time that have made this system of sort of monetary compensation a lot more problematic. And so what I would say is one of the first things that happened is that we sort of established a, a criminal legal system, a court system, where the government took adjudication into its own hands. And so then the government be, became the one who was responsible for determining the amount of compensation and or money that the person needed to to pay. And the second thing that that happened was that the there was a commercialization of bail that happened where not only the, the individual was responsible for making a payment, but if they couldn't, there were corporate interests 
corporate entities that were offered to do that for them, of course, at a fee. And in the hopes of them making profits off of people over the long term. And the third thing I would mention is that as the country moved in the direction of of incarcerating more people pre-trial and relying more heavily on jails and and the system of mass incarceration, at the same time, bails were being set higher and people who had limited ability to pay were more often part of what was fueling mass incarceration. So it wasn't just people who were tried and found guilty. It was people who had bail, more cash bail assigned and were unable to pay and ended up waiting their time in jail before their trial. It is a weird outcome. First of all, the fifth century. I mean, that's that's not what I thought you were going to say at the beginning of that. That's really interesting that it that the idea goes back that far. But it's still a very strange idea in a way because as you say, we have a criminal justice system. It's enshrined in our constitution. It's it's an entire third of our of our government, the, the judiciary. And part of the idea, part of the core idea is a presumption of innocence. So you have a system where someone is arrested, they're held, and they are presumed innocent. And there's this weird mechanism where it's like you're presumed innocent, but give us some money first. And by the way, there's a whole kind of like private sector going on. There's a marketplace for this. It's 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 very strange. Maybe you can help us. I, I mean, I, I hope that most of our listeners have not had to have personal experience with this, but probably many of them have where they've been in this position. They've encountered the bail system for, for them or a family member in some way. A shocking number of Americans have been incarcerated or, or, or arrested at some point. Could you just, for those who haven't, how does this work? Like play the movie for us a little bit of, so the cops show up and then what happens to you? How, how does, how does bail bond kind of come into that story? Sure. So when someone is comes into contact with law enforcement, law enforcement decides if they're, they're going to arrest the individual. And if the person is arrested at the next step in the arrested by the police, the next step in the process is for a district attorney to determine if charges should be filed. And so once that happens, and usually that both of those things happen within hours, right? That happens pretty quickly. Um, there, if charges are filed by the district attorney, then there's a determination as to what conditions are necessary for the person to return to the community pretrial. Right. And so what conditions are set of conditions? And that could involve someone being released on their own recognizance. Oftentimes that is reserved for really low level crime. And then then there could be a set of other conditions, whether it's pretrial supervision, where you have to check in with someone while you're home, or it could be a monetary condition. So that's where the money comes in. That's cash bail. And then there's an option really reserved for the most serious crime that we see in our country where someone is, it's determined that bail can't be assigned and they need to be held for trial. And so all of that happens, um, you know, by there's, there's a judge that makes the determination based on a whole host of circumstances, but primarily what's needed to ensure that the person shows up to court. There are some places in this country where they also determine what's whether there's a there's a significant risk to public safety for the person being released as well. And so the judge takes all of that into consideration when they determine the set of conditions by which someone can be released pre-trial. 
And but if you are assigned a financial bail, right, you're assigned cash bail, and you don't have that money up front, basically, your choice is stay in stay incarcerated pretrial, or enter into a contract with a with a commercial bail company, so that they can put up the money for you. And what what that does is attracts people who don't have the money up front in these contracts with these for profit companies that have really damaging effects, right? They, they also have to pay a fee for that so that the company can make a profit. But then there's also a whole host of consequences that come from that, that dynamic, that contract as well. I think there are, and you lay out in your recent report from July 6th of this year, a number of problems that reform advocates like you have, have brought to light with this entire setup. The highest level one, the one that seems most obvious to me is what I alluded to at the top of the show. The the way you put it is that there are two systems, one for the rich, one for the poor. Why is that? Why are there two systems? Well, I think that one of the main reasons that we have two systems at this point based on someone's access to money is because money is a factor in whether someone can be released or not. So if you're assigned a bail that's say $10,000, if you don't have that money, that you're you're you have two choices, like I said earlier. But that money becomes that determining factor, even though what people are trying to assess in assigned bail is whether someone will appear in court or and, and remain crime free while they're released, right? And so there are other ways to do that that have nothing to do with money, and that's where some of the reforms have started taking shape in in, in jurisdictions across the country things that really support people in showing up to court and identifying what those barriers are that might that might limit their ability to come to their court date or other supports that people may need to ensure that they maintain access to their jobs and their families and things that keep people safe. So just to just to give an example of this, two people are arrested. Let's call them Rachel and Matt, for example. Rachel happens to have $10,000 in her bank account. Matt does not. This may also mirror reality. And we're accused of the same crime. I shouldn't have said we there. We're accused of the same crime and we're assessed the same flight risk. Neither of us is like a tunneling expert and we're not going to like make off to Peru or some other non-extradition country, but we're assessed the same flight risk. We're uh, we're assessed a a $10,000 bail. And you are able to go to your bank account and pay that money, you go home. I face the choice of I can stay in jail, which I definitely do not want to do, especially if it causes me to lose whatever job I have or incur other costs at at home, or I can go to a commercial bail bond company. I can get the $10,000, but it's going to cost me because I've got to pay them fees and, and, and whatever else. So in a way, that's what you're referring to right there is, is I have, in, in essence, even though we have the same presumption of innocence under our system of justice, I'm being penalized up front just because I have less means. That's correct. And I think the other thing that is important to note is that even if we then, at that point, both show up for our court date, or for that matter, both of the charges against us are dropped, I get all my money back, Right. And, and you are still out the fee. And so regardless of, as you mentioned, the presumption of innocence, whatever's going to happen as a result of the court process, there's, there's this automatic penalty for people who don't have money up front to pay their bail. 
And you actually put a fine point on that just by way of example in your report when you you said that between 2011 and 2015, in just one state, the state of Maryland, there were $75 million in non-refundable premiums paid by people. And this is the catch in this sentence that should really grab people's attention. The $75 million was paid by people whose cases did not result in a conviction. So Matt and Rachel are both innocent. Presumption of innocence And we are, in fact, innocent. We're not found guilty in these cases, but the mats of the world in just this one state pay $75 million, about 20 million bucks a year, just for the privilege of not rotting in jail while we await trial. And I think one other point that I want to mention is that the way that this plays out across the country is that in, in the justice system that we have is that far more people of color, in particular, black and brown people are the ones that are getting arrested. They are the ones that are having bail set, oftentimes comparably higher to white counterparts, right? So again, two people, same circumstances. If you are a person of color, it's it's much more likely that your bail is going to be set higher. You're going to have to pay more money to get out of jail. And, and what that results is, these uh, these really troubling financial burdens are placed more often on on people of color, and also more more people of color remain incarcerated simply because they can't afford the cost of their right. Health. It's a double whammy there because you're you're going to have a higher amount set, and you're more likely to have it set on you. So I, I see exactly what you mean. What I I think we've given a pretty good overview of of the most apparent problems. Are there other things we haven't hit on in terms of inherent problems with the bail system? Where to begin? I think that the the one thing that's going to be important, and we just discussed this a little bit, is that most people believe that the system of pretrial justice and and bail and bringing people to their day in court is is supposed to keep individuals safe in their communities, right? The whole idea is that we're supposed to assess if someone commits a crime, are they safe to remain in the community while they await their trial? The reality of the system that we have is that it actually creates more of the conditions that keep people or that that, that are that create a, a sense of unsafety. So someone who's incarcerated for just a few days might lose their job might lose their car, might lose custody of their children. All the things that kind of create grounding in community and, and keep people out of, out of uh, situations that might cause harm to others, right? And so that is what the system of pretrial incarceration does. And the corporate interest is part of the reason that we continue to have the system that doesn't do the function that we want it to do. The pushback that reform advocates would get to what you just said is, and this is a perception, not necessarily a reality, but the perception is, look, you have people who have been arrested for serious crimes. And if you let them out without any condition, they're going to reoffend. They're going to commit further crimes while they're awaiting trial. Or if they don't have essentially some money held hostage during that time, they're going to just take it on the lamb and not show up for trial. To what extent are those two problems reality? Do, do we have any figures on that, that that give us a sense of how often do people commit further crimes during their pre-trial 
phase for an original crime and how often people don't show up without the pressure of having bail hanging over their heads. Sure. So, I mean, I think there, there, there's the first kind of the perceptions piece that I'll talk about, right? So the idea that we have a system of bail that keeps people out of harm's way while they're awaiting trial, right? That, that notion is, is embedded in a much larger system that just captures so many people, right? So we, what we have now is just a system of mass incarceration where people for really low level crime that probably everybody would agree is not a public safety risk, they're getting caught up in the same system. And so that produces that itself produces a whole host of negative consequences, right? And then your second point, you you were kind of asking for data on on the matter, right? And so I think that the the kind of best way to describe this is to show an example, because bail reform is happening in jurisdictions across the country. It's looking different everywhere. One key place that lots of people look to, to say, is bail reform working is the state of New Jersey, because they passed the comprehensive bail reform law in, in 2017. And since that time, both the rates of people, people being released and remaining arrest free and people being released and remaining arrest-free for violent offenses remain the exact same, right? They remain the same before and after bail reform. And so there's no evidence yet of the kind of more developing places where this is developing more recently. There's no evidence pointing to, to changes in bail laws contributing to any increases in violent crime that we're seeing across the country because we're seeing that happen everywhere. What you do see is, is again, places where it has been implemented. And for those people who are released, the circumstances being exactly the same, because what's changing is not an assessment of someone's appearance in court or their safety in the community. What you're, what's changing is money being part of the conversation. That's really interesting. And in fact, I just want to point to another piece of your report where you say that Despite the perception that, hey, these are dangerous people, we have to lock them up or they're going to disappear or like start operating a puppy crushing factory. You actually show some statistics in your paper that systems that rely on cash bail produce high rates of unnecessary pretrial incarceration, which increases recidivism, fancy word for ending up getting tried again for another crime. And one study found that assigning cash bail was associated with a 6% to 9% increase in the rate of recidivism. So if anything, the case goes in the other direction. Now, you noted a moment ago that some states, some areas have begun to attempt some reforms. You noted New Jersey. Maybe you could just walk us through what reforms have been tried. What what kinds of places have been trying different systems and different approaches? Sure. So, I mean, I think the the reforms that you hear about most often are are like the ones that, the one that I mentioned in New Jersey, which is statewide legislation that basically effectively removes money from the pretrial decision making process, eliminates cash bail, and 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 you see we, we are starting to see others more recently, Illinois that is preparing for the implementation of its new bail reform law, try and take that up as well because of the recognition that really money doesn't have a role to play in in this process, and that there's much much a much better way to make that decision about about who about 
the, someone's pretrial release. But you'll also see, in particular, individual jurisdictions implementing bail reforms on a more granular level. So you'll see places by a set of a category of charges that for which bail cash bail should not be set. Right. And so that's kind of a recognition that for really low level crime, again, people are safe to be in the community and and that cash bail is not an appropriate condition of that release. You also see will also see jurisdictions eliminating the commercial bail industry or states as a whole, eliminating the commercial bail industry. Again, recognizing that corporate in interest in bail makes everyone less safe because the decision that the decisions that they're making about who to bail out and how to go about doing that have everything to do with profit and nothing to do with safety. And so we're we're seeing these types of initiatives kind of get taken up across the country both as a way to reduce the number of people who are in jail pre-trial and to reduce the financial harm that are that's caused to people who are in the system. I want to key in on that second piece for a second, because even without tackling the underlying notion of we need to have a bail system, your report from July 6th, which by the way, I commend to people, I, it's, a, it's a quick Google away. And it believe me, it's worth your time. It's called Profit Over People, the commercial bail industry fueling America's cash bail systems. You can't say it any plainer than that. I know you've taken kind of a snakes on a plane approach to titling your article. People know exactly what they're going to get from the title, but that is what they're going to get. And it's, it's, it's worth reading about because you really paint some some eye-popping examples and, and stories in the report. I won't get into, go into all of them, but what you're really talking about is a predatory lending industry. You're talking about much like, when we, and we've tried to crack down in this country on companies that issue payday loans and all kinds of other fringe banking sector financial vehicles that take advantage of poor people and their inability to access other safer, more legitimate forms of capital when they need them. That's essentially what the commercial bail bond industry is. And it also relies on bounty hunters, which I don't know what people believe about Boba Fett or Dog or any of these other media figures, but these are not, this is not a savory industry. Could you just maybe, before we kind of get into reforms of the specific commercial aspect of the commercial bail bond industry or the bounty hunter portion of it, could you maybe just share with our listeners and our viewers just a little bit of just how unsavory these practices are and the bounty hunter aspect of this can be? Sure. So, I mean, to start off in general, I appreciate you making the an analogy to payday lenders because there's so much similarity here. Looking, preying on people who are at a particularly vulnerable moment who need access to money quickly and don't have a lot of other options. And then they set, they set up contracts that take advantage of that, that extract large sums of additional money just for the privilege of entering into the contract. Don't give people a sense of what they're really signing up. For. The contracts are set up so that, that people have to have co-signers. So y- your family members can be on the hook for all the same the same terms of the contract that you sign up for. And, and, and you see these corporations going after people's family members in ways that are just really, really damaging. Because the commercial bail companies are responsible, they get paid back from the court if 
the individual shows up to the court, they end up hiring bounty hunters, which is what you mentioned, to, to make sure that that happens, right? To find people when they miss a court date, to, to and, and they use kind of any tactic in their, in their tool belt, including usually violent actions to actually apprehend people. And they also will oftentimes go, similarly go after people's families that way. And so they really, they really hold power over people in a way that and and there's really no accountability for it whatsoever. They kind of operate without any consequence for acting, acting towards individuals violently, or, or inappropriately going after people's family members. In a sense, and look, longtime listeners to this show know that I am, I am a judicial system purist. I believe that guilt or innocence needs to be handled through a judicial system, a formal system in this country. I'm against vigilante justice in all of its forms. And it really sounds from the description in your report, which again, I urge people to check out that what we have is basically a legalized system of vigilante justice. You you point out some just 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 a few examples of the thousands and thousands that are out there. One person who was accused of stealing a bottle of aspirin ended up being shackled, beaten, and stuffed in a trunk because anything goes in this industry. And again, this is all in service of a commercialized bail bond industry. I know I sound like I'm getting up on my soapbox about this, but it is true that the more you read about it, the more you you, you realize that we do have a legalized system of vigilantes out there backing up the interests, not of the criminal justice system per se, but of their clients, commercial companies who are engaging in predatory lending. This seems like a cesspool that really, really needs to be cleaned up. So back to the reform topic with that firmly in mind, you mentioned reforms that are aimed at changing the system, eliminating bail as as an approach. Are there specific reforms that have been proposed or are being tried that are aimed at the commercialization of bail bonds or the bounty hunter system or both? Absolutely. I think that, well, firstly, similarly to kind of the broad elimination of money bail, there's also movements in states across the country to just eliminate commercial, the commercial industry from the bail conversation altogether. There are a couple of states that have done that. Wisconsin was one of the first. And so that's definitely there. That's definitely taking place both through statewide legislation as well as court rulings. And then there's also other, again, more more specific reforms that states are trying first kind of building an alternative to the commercial bail system, right? I think there's a large recognition that even in a situation where cash bail does exist, if there's no if there's no commercial system, um, there needs to be an alternative. And so the states um, are actually taking up the responsibility of, a, of of serving in that capacity, so that they they can for they can put basically not require that that amount of money from people and or kind of enter into those agreements between the government and the individual. There's also kind of already enforcement mechanisms that exist that are really just underutilized. So there's insurance enforcement that states actually have at their disposal for and and these kind of bail companies and and the big corporations that back them up fall under that those insurance provisions right and so there's a 
there are opportunities for states to really use the enforcement that's at their disposal to, to come to hold people accountable for bad actors, for those bounty hunters that are that are causing a lot of harm to people, for the, the unfair contracts that they're entering into, for all the hosts of really unsavory practices that they engage in. Like there have to be consequences and <clears throat> there are op- options kind of in the insurance enforcement space. Also, there we have a system of consumer protection laws, right? The clients of bail con- the contracts, they're consumers, like anyone else who enters into a contract for anything. And so there, there are there was in particular a lawsuit in California that that came out in favor of people who who sued um, to require that their co-signers, their family members, be given specific notice about the terms of their contract. And so there there are rules under consumer protection that if states would enforce them for more forcefully for these bail companies, that people would be protected. And I guess I I want to ask you a a tough two-part question, because you lay out in your report a series of reforms, and then you give reform possibilities, I should say, along with examples and so the, the two-part question is, of all of the reforms that have been tried and proposed around the country, which ones stand out to you as the most important, the most consequential in trying to clean up the system? And in cases where they've been tried, how are they working? I mean, are they, I guess I'm, I'm sort of asking you, like, what's the most effective stuff that we could be doing? And do we have some proof? Well, I mean, I think you'll you'll get the idealistic version first, which is that I think both eliminating money bail altogether and then eliminating the commercial bail industry from states are sort of the gold standard, right? That's what that's what should be happening. I think we wanted to offer people a look into what in particular what states can do in addition to those things. And that's why we reference kind of the lawsuits that are coming coming out of under consumer protection and or the kind of ways in which states are taking responsibility for the the bail system instead of having corporations fill that role um, as options to consider when trying to sort of rein in the power of the commercial bail industry. I don't think we haven't yet talked enough about the power and influence that this industry has that they've kind of through their lobbying efforts have um, ensured that there are a system of laws and a system of regulations that leave them without consequence, right? This didn't happen by accident. These, these companies recognize that they can make more money by, by sending bounty hunters after people or not paying the court back for the money that they owe than actually abiding by the laws of that, that currently govern this type of practice. And so I think that Whenever you look at a reform, it's important to understand that the reason why this hasn't happened yet is not because it's not the right thing to do. It's because you have a lot of corporate influence over the the system of laws that we have that's preventing it from happening. I it always kind of I I've it's interesting. I we were speaking earlier about payday lenders, and I remember the efforts at the federal level at payday lending reform and trying to clamp down on that sector, especially on auto loans, which 
are sort of like the crack cocaine of, of that industry. I don't mean to like, I mean, there's, there's, it, it's, it, it, it was really remarkable at the time being the, the target of those lobbying efforts in favor of that industry. And then I worked as a state legislative staffer and sort of the, the same deal all over again. What arguments are put forward by the commercial bail bond industry that seem to perpetuate their existence and have put them in such a, a strong position as you lay out? And do any of those arguments hold any water? So I think one of the main arguments that that gets gets advanced a lot and I, th- I think is one of the most persuasive is that they provide a public service, right? So that they are providing a public service that without which we would have more mass incarceration, right? So they brand themselves as kind of part of effectuating justice, right? A part of making pretrial release available to more people. And I think that that argument has has been convincing for a very long time. But as you see bail reform gain momentum and and you start to see these for-profit corporations come out against any efforts to shrink the the amount of bail that people get assigned or the number of people who get assigned bail in the first place, you recognize that it's actually that their their interests are different. They, they, They have an interest in making sure that the cash bail system continues to exist so that they continue to get clients. And so saying that they're, they're a champion of reducing mass incarceration because they're the ones get bailing people out um, is, 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 is misleading in, in a very damaging way. Recently, this entire issue has gotten caught up, as most things do eventually in America these days, in politics. There has been at least the perception that there's been a backlash. Now, you could parse that a number of ways, but the the narrative that one reads is, for example, the Chase Abudin recall in San Francisco. The story on that was, well, that was fueled by a backlash to criminal justice reform efforts, including on bail. And there's also been some mixture between bail reform efforts and perceptions of the broader defund the police movement. And this idea that Democrats in particular have gotten too far along in the criminal justice reform, not tough enough on crime direction. And there's been a little bit of a push back in the other direction. I guess my question to you is, What's the reality behind that perception? Is there really a political backlash that we're seeing that's tied to to bail reform? And is there a better way to talk about these issues that wouldn't generate such a backlash? Sure. So the reality is is that we are seeing a backlash and it's um, it's unfortunate because it's not grounded in in the evidence. It is grounded, however, in anecdotal kind of stories that people lift up to to show what we know not to be true, which is that they're to lift up issues in the system, right? And so I think one thing I point to a lot of times is that the, the what people are saying is that the, the rise in violent crime is a result of bail reform. And what's important to recognize is that 
we're seeing a rise of violent crime happening across the country, uh, tragically. And it has nothing to do with the places where bail reform is being implemented. And there is no evidence that demonstrates that connection. Right. And so you're you're blaming something that you there's no proof <laughs> that it's, it's causing the violent, the rise in violent crime. And there are a whole host of other things that the other factors that are um, much, much bigger contributors to the to that kind of nationwide trend that we're seeing, including the <laughs> increased availability and accessibility of guns, right? We see gun violence in particular fueling the rise in violent crime. You also, the entire country experienced great social insta- and economic instability as a result of the pandemic. Those factors have a lot to do with what the rise in crime that we're seeing. Bail reform, and, and in particular, looking to reduce the role that money plays in deciding whether someone is in jail pretrial is, is, is taking a whole host of other things into account, right? And it, it, is, it is not eliminating the conversation of public safety from the pretrial decision-making process. What it is doing is eliminating, the convers- eliminating considerations about money. And so that is an important distinction in understanding that we've seen places like New Jersey have great success in in eliminating the role that money plays in the pretrial decision making process with no impact on public safety. And so um, challenging bail reform and lifting up anecdotal stories just really doesn't does nothing other than kind of point the finger in the wrong direction. If you are a state legislator listening to this, and we have some among our listening audience across the country, and let's say you're a Democrat, and let's say you do not want to get tagged with this legislator so-and-so is soft on crime label, this issue still speaks to you, and you still want to make progress, and you still want to protect the people you represent from being preyed upon. It strikes me that at the very end of your report, there are a couple of reform ideas that don't get straight into the crosshairs of the so-and-so is weak on crime, but still provide some effective reforms that can protect people. And I'm speaking specifically about investment in enforcement mechanisms to prevent people by uh, from being abused by the commercial bail industry and consumer protection laws, which can apply to the insurance companies that underwrite the commercial bail companies. Are those kind of the sweet spot? Are those are those measures that are effective but don't necessarily go right at this issue if you're if you're someone who doesn't feel like you can go there politically? The reality is that people are being harmed by the system of cash bail and the commercial bail industry every day. And so efforts to reduce the the harm that that people experience today by these, these corporate actors, is 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 going to be worthwhile. It's going to it's going to have a meaningful impact on the lives of of those who are experiencing the criminal legal system, who are accused of crimes and who may not have the money to afford their bail. And so it will it will bolster the justice that the justice system can administer. And and if there are folks that are interested in, in advancing those measures, we we are looking to support people across the country and trying to figure out the best way to do that. Mm. Well, if people are looking to get involved, either in an advocacy role or 
by by communicating with their legislators or if they're a legislator themselves, the first thing they can do is they can reference your report. I gave the title earlier in the show. They can Google that. And it is chock full of reform ideas and things that are being implemented in real time on the state level that are making a difference right now. And I would urge people to check that out and think creatively because there is a wide range of things that we can do to rein in the worst of the worst and generally benefit people across America who may find themselves caught up in this very unjust system. Rachel Eisenberg, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this with us. Thank you so much for having this important conversation. 